Today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13. Chosen four words taken right off the page as the title, Endure Hardship as Discipline. Endure Hardship as Discipline. You know, in my lifetime, I've seen uh, three significant shifts in philosophy as to what's appropriate in dis disciplining children. Many of us growing up uh, were spanked <laughs> when we did something we weren't supposed to do. <laughs> my dad used a, a, a belt. But then we were convinced that physical punishment was damaging to children's self-esteem, so we did timeouts, discipline without punishment. I was talking to someone, a grandparent who was uh, oft times responsible for young children, and the parents have adopted what seems to be the newest uh, invention of child discipline, which is reasoning. It's time to give time out a time out. Um, apparently, now, time outs are shaming to children. So we don't want to shame them when they've done something they're not supposed to do. Uh, we are supposed to simply reason with them. So <laughs> all I know is that, that, you know, I'm really glad that my kids are out of the house. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm, just, I'm just hoping that they can forgive me for shaming them. Um, uh, I'll pay for their therapy, I guess. <laughs> you know, Scripture is very clear that God relates to us as a father relates to children. There's that verse in uh, John, John 1, which says, He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Our God relates to us as though we are his children. And he is a loving father. And in his great love, he, he provides for us materially and, and spiritually and emotionally, but he also relates to us and deals with us behaviorally, which includes discipline. He disciplines us. There are two kind of dominant schools of thought that seem to alternate as though on a pendulum when it comes to people who have committed crimes and been um, convicted of crimes. And that is, on the one side, correction 
The other side, punishment. So wherever that pendulum is, if someone is convicted of a crime, they might be sent to a penal institute to pay for their crime, to be punished for their crime. But if the pendulum's in a different place, they might be sent to the same place, but it's a correctional institute where they're going to be reformed and corrected. Punishment versus correction. It's my impression that God the Father in this life predominantly deals with us from a correctional perspective, not a penal perspective. He's into correcting, not punishing. And yes, there is punishment that ultimately comes, but most, if not all, and certainly, I believe, for his children, those who have acknowledged that he is the Christ. He deals us with the intent to correct and to change and to make us better, to make us holy, to make us like him. I've referenced 1 John 4, and I'm going to read you now a larger section of it. Think of God as Father, as we read about his great love. 1 John 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but we love one another. But if we love one another, sorry, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. As his loved children, we experience the perfect love of God. Which means that we live without the fear of punishment. And yet we experience discipline. And that is the subject of the passage in Hebrews that we're going to take a look at. 
God deals with us from a correctional perspective, not a punitive one. Not in punishment. Another reason why we can be convinced of this is we read Paul's words in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, condemnation is, is final. Condemnation is, is not corrective. Condemnation is punishment. But in Christ, there is none of that. We experience discipline when we've done things that we shouldn't have done. But that discipline is not meant to punish as much as it is to correct us. And so it's this mindset that the writer of Hebrews writes this section on God and his discipline for his children. Hebrews 12, 4 to 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten his word, this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And that's from Proverbs. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, our fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, Proverbs again, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. I don't know how many times I've read that passage this week and scratched my head and felt, wow, oh, this is, something's out of sorts here. This feels strange to me. You see, the main thought is this, endure hardship as discipline. And yet, when you look at the context, the words all surrounding those four words, endure hardship as discipline, the words in which those words are couched, there's nothing really being said about sin and failure. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 is all about the heroes of the faith and how they persevered under difficulty. And then he starts chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's not like a it's like, be encouraged by these great saints. It's not, 
Okay, you blew it. You failed. And you're going to be disciplined. And then he moves on in, in verses 2 to 3, talking about Jesus Christ who never sinned. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Once again, not only be encouraged by the example of the saints that have gone before, be encouraged by Jesus who was perfect and yet experienced extreme hardship. And then he says directly to us in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood and and have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? God loves us so much and we should take that as an encouragement that he is willing to discipline us. See, the context of those words, endure hardship as discipline, seems disjointed with the context of encouragement that the writer is making. It seems to me that discipline has to do with sin. If this is the case, why is he, is he couching his talk on discipline in examples of faith? I think that's just the point. Let me explain. I think this is a case of what I would call intentional ambiguity. Let me explain. Ambiguity is a word that, you know, if you want to impress people, start using it. Uh, ambiguity, a statement which can contain two or more meanings. Now, some people are ambiguous because they're ignorant. <coughs> some people are ambiguous purposely to mix you up and mess you up. But you can also be intentionally ambiguous because there is more than one meaning intended. Like in literature, intentional ambiguity in literature leaves something undetermined in, the order, in order to open up multiple possible meanings. So when the author says, endure hardship as discipline, I believe he's saying, whether that hardship is given to you by God as a result of sin, to, to help conform you and change you to become holy, or that hardship is a result of living in a fallen world. Discipline is expected when we fail. That is the discipline of a loving father. But we need to accept hardship, whether it is a result of sin or not. You see, hardship can result or be a result of simply living in a sinful, fallen world. 
It isn't always God disciplining you for failure. Wasn't that the argument of Job's friends? Job knew hardship. His friends came along and said, Whoop, what did you do to deserve the hardship? And Job said, I didn't do anything to deserve the hardship. Remember Jesus. Walking along, he came across a blind man. And somebody said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, well, it's not about sin. He could have said it's because he lives in a, you live in a fallen world. A world that has rejected perfection, rejected an incredible life of love with God for self-servingness, self-purpose. And so we live in a world, even the world itself, the physical earth that we live in is groaning for the day when this time will pass. And so, your hardship may be a result of your sin. God is saying, hey, look at, wake up here. But it's never a punishment or a condemnation. It's never a put-down. It's never meant to defeat you. It's meant to lift you up, to turn your back, to repent, to turn your back on that sin, to adopt holiness. But your hardship might not be about sin. It might be that you are living in a fallen world. This week, as, as a, a leader in this church, I've experienced hardship. I'm convinced it's not about sin or God's punishment because I feel that it's because we're doing the right thing. <laughs> and God is trying to make good out of bad. And so... I'm not to accept the hardship as punishment or condemnation. I take it as an opportunity. And I see it also as the fact that we live in a fallen world. And it's getting more and more complicated to be a Christian who believes in the word of God. Hardship is going to be part of what we live with because we live in a fallen world. And so, what are we supposed to do when we face hardship? We're supposed to accept it as though we would accept discipline from God. Because discipline is not meant to punish or condemn us. Discipline is meant to build us up. So, if I... Because I live in a fallen world, experience hardship. I make lemonade from the lemons. I expect hardship. And I embrace hardship. Now just so you don't think I'm off my rocker, 
Read James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature. And complete. Not lacking anything. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God not lift us out of hardship? Why are those who are saying, if you're experiencing hardship, it's because you don't have enough faith? Which is a lie. Why is God not removing this hardship? Because he loves you too much. He loves you with a perfect love, which casts out fear, which has nothing to do with punishment, but all to do with correction, development, making you holy, like Christ. Endure hardship as you would discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. It might be a result of your sin. It might be a result of living in a fallen world. It actually doesn't, you know, it matters in the sense that if it's about sin, acknowledge it and deal with it. But as far as your approach to it, it should be the same. Expect it and embrace it <coughs> because God is doing it because he loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we live with hardship. We look forward to the day when we won't. We look forward to the day when the effects of sin will no longer be a part of anyone's reality in your kingdom. We look forward to that day, but in the here, the now, we pray that you would help us to not run automatically to the idea of punishment and condemnation when we experience hardship, but help us to accept that we live in this fallen world. And Lord, help us to make good out of that hardship, to use it for your purposes. You are a redeeming God who takes bad and brings out good. Help us to be like that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.